This is an SJC Radio production. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. So we're now really lucky to be joined by Neil Trundle on Pit Stop. Um, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Very welcome. Uh, would you mind starting? Uh, I should also say we're, we're still joined by Mr. Bird, Ed, Joe, Finn and Max. Um, could you start by telling us, Neil, uh, a bit about your amazing career in motorsport? I don't know whether you're able to, to summarise what you've managed to be up to. But, um... OK, yeah, certainly. So, um, well, first of all, it's a pleasure to be here. How many in total are we on the Zoom? Are we five or? Let's see. Seven of us, I think. Okay, seven. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, um, and as you probably gather, I'm not very good on this technology. So <laughs> Zoom is a bit of a miracle to me. I'm a bit of a Luddite, if you know what a Luddite is. <laughs> uh, so my career. Well, I've been in motor racing since 1968. So I started uh, my life as an, uh, an apprentice at Ford Motor Company in Dagenham. And I was in the trade school, which gave me a great uh, start to engineering. And I got the racing bug. So I came into racing in 1968. I came down to Surrey and joined Alan Mann Racing. And, uh, but they were in decline as a company. So I can see uh, someone else on here now. That's good. So um, I then went down the road and joined um, Jack Brabham. And this is all in Byfleet. So um, Byfleet or Woking, Surrey area was was a centre of racing, really, because of um, British aerospace in Weybridge. So I joined Brabham and uh, I was in the workshop to start with. And then I worked my way onto the race team very quickly and travelled the world. Um, so it was just an eye opener for me. I'd never flown before. I never worked on racing cars before, except when I was back in Essex, I did build my own race car. I wanted to be a race driver, but I ended up working on the Spanners instead, which is okay. I'd probably be dead now. If I'd, if I'd have got into racing, it was so risky then, I might not be alive now. I lost lots of friends and race drivers. So I joined Brabham's and Ron Dennis was at Brabham's as a mechanic. Jack Brabham and Joachim Rimp were the drivers. And I worked at Brabham's for, well, from 68 until the end of 1970 when Jack Brabham retired. Ron Dennis and I became great friends. And in 71, we formed our own race team called Rondale Racing. 
So he was the Ron and I was the Dell, except we agreed to spell it D-E-L and not D-L-E. I don't know why I ever agreed to that. <laughs> Rondell Racing was a great team. It was in Formula 2. We had top drivers. Graham Hill was one of our drivers. Um, Carlos Reutem and Pescarola. And we were involved with an oil company in France called Motul, who were, interestingly, the first company to produce synthetic oil. So we were sponsored by them. We had three French drivers. We ran the team. Our image was better than anyone else. We were really moving on. We started to build a Formula One car, which was going to be a Rondell Formula One car. And um, unfortunately, in the fuel crisis of 1973, we ran short of money and we had to close the company. So Ron Dennis and I were partners, 71 to 73. At the end of 73, I, um, I myself and um, Tony Vosopoulos, our chairman, and a chap named Ken Grob, we took the Formula One car out of Rondell. It wasn't finished. The car was in construction, but we took the car and we formed a Formula One team called Token Racing. Tom Price was our driver. And we only did a few races. Um, the other teams were resistant to us coming in. Um, I built, two of us, myself and another mechanic, built the car, the token. And um, we did um, Zolder and uh, uh, Silverstone Daily Express Trophy. Tom was a great driver, up-and-coming driver. Uh, but I, I couldn't sustain the 90, 100 hours a week of work, so I had to leave. I went to Tyrrell in 74. And I worked from Tyrrell at Tyrrell from 74 to 76. Fantastic years, lovely team, great family business. And I built the six-wheel Tyrrell. In fact, I was the first person to drive it. I was the test driver for a day, checking out the brakes. Um, in fact, it wasn't uncommon for mechanics to drive Formula One cars, just shake them down on the track or drive them down to the circuit. Nowadays, you can't do that. So I was at uh, Tyrrell from 74 to 76. Um, the six-wheel Tyrrell was very innovative. Then um, end of 76, Ron Dennis had started his own team again, another Formula 2 team, and asked me to join him. So I joined him in 1976, right through to 1981. Um, we ran Formula 2, Formula 3, Pro Cars, and at that time, we um, decided to build a Formula One car, which was going to be the Project 4 Formula One car. And we managed to get John Barnard on board as the designer. And we built the world's first uh, carbon chassis Formula One car with the help of um, a chap from um, uh, British Aerospace. They advised us on how to build it. And this chap came on board. His name was Arthur Webb. He was a structural designer and he volunteered all his hours. And I think to him should be accredited with John Barnard, the Formula One, carbon Formula One car, which is what all the teams use today. So um, we were moving on up in the competitive world of Formula Two and um, all the other formulas we were in. Marlborough were involved with us. And at the end of 1980, um, McLarens were 
were very rocky. They hadn't produced a good car for a few years. And so um, Marlborough persuaded or told McLaren that they had to amalgamate with Project 4. And so we joined forces and the carbon chassis, uh, which was going to be the Project 4 Formula 1 car, became MP41, the first carbon chassis car, which John Watson raced and did Cesaris, and then Nicky Lauda came on board. And so when we amalgamated, there was a lot of them and us, McLarens and Pro Project 4. We were trying to find our own way to amalgamate. I had the opportunity then, uh, a Mexican guy, driver, had some money, and he asked me to start a Formula 3 team with him. So I became a team entrant again in 1981. So I'd only been at McLaren six months. The carbon car was there. I helped them set up the wind tunnel, and then I left and formed my own F3 team. I ran that uh, from 81 to 84. And then in 85, I joined Ron Dennis again to build the new factory in Shearwater. I was a clerk of the works building the factory uh, end of 85 and right through 86. In 87, I went back on the team as traveling fabricator mechanic. And in 88, I was made chief mechanic. Uh, that coincided with um, Ayrton Senna joining us from Lotus. And it also co coincided with Honda joining us with their very competitive turbo engine, which we stole from Williams. Um, well, it came with Ayrton actually. When Ayrton came on board, Honda were with him and they pulled the engine out of Williams, they they kept with Lotus and they were with us, but with um, with Ayrton and um, Alan Prost, we dominated Formula One for quite a few years. At the end of 89, I came off the team and I joined the gearbox shop as manager and I was gearbox shop manager for 16 years. And then 12, 14 years ago, I handed over to my successor, a young guy, uh, ambitious guy, and I reformed Heritage Department, which was to look after all our historic cars. So I was a member of Heritage, restoring and running all these beautiful cars until I retired October the 23rd last year, at which time I was 76. So I'd been with McLaren 35 years. And I've been in racing, what is it, 50, 52 years. So that's been my career in racing. Currently, I, um, since October, I retired last year. I worked two days a week for Ron Dennis, who, uh, who left McLaren's, who retired from McLaren's. I worked two days a week looking after some of his beautiful cars and helping him to build a very elaborate underground garage at his house. So that's my career to date. I have a few toys in the garage. I have an MGB and a Humber Scepter and a few motorbikes. And that's it. So last week I was 77 and next year I'm going to drive a race car somewhere. I'm going to buy a race car and go racing again. That's it. Well, happy, yeah, happy birthday for last week, Neil. Um, Thank you. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to pass over to uh, 
the sort of the pit stop team I mean there's so much you've just kind of gone through uh, for them to ask you about uh, so we're going to start Mr Bird I think you've got yes. a question um, hi Dil. Um I've got a question about uh, drivers do you yes. think it's better to have two number one drivers in the team like you did with McLaren with Senna and Prost or do you think it's better to have a clear number one and a clear number two that is a good, good question very relevant isn't it I mean, when, when George Russell comes in next year with Lewis, will he be number two? Yeah. Um, lots of teams, McLaren in particular, have always had equal status. Um, and truly, I can vouch for the fact that they've always got the same equipment. In fact, if you, only, if you have a new development part and you can't put it on both cars, McLaren often haven't put it on either car. Um, well... So if you remember when Lewis and Alonso were driving for us, yes, yes. Um, which was in eight, oh, so, um, the 2008, I think, was it? 2008? Yeah, 2008, 2007, 2008, because Lewis won the championship in 2008. 2007. Yeah. But either driver could have won that championship if we'd have had number one, number two status. Oh, yes, yes. Um, so... We lost both the Drivers' Championship and the Constructors' Championship that year. Um, I don't know if you remember all the press, but Alonso, when he realised Lewis, uh, he, he thought Lewis couldn't keep up with him. And um, he thought it would be a natural, you know, mm. a natural um, result that he would end up as number one. But when Lewis started clocking up the wins, he realised the championship was getting away from him. So he went to Ron and said, I need number one status. In fact, he threatened Ron, and that, that's in the public domain now, um, which uh, spoiled the relationship. Ron didn't agree. So it can go wrong. Um, yes. Sometimes it naturally sorts itself out. Um, mm. I mean, Ronnie Peterson and Andretti, I think Ronnie was quicker, but Andretti was number one, and Ronnie gave up lots of wins. Yeah. Um, I don't know. What I do think is that they should open it up and have um, three cars, allow three cars, because the young drivers who are coming up, I think they should be running as well. And lots of teams, I think, could do that. And it would it would give their young drivers a chance to to get the experience so that when the one of the number ones retires, they, they you know, they're ready for it. Yeah. It's a tricky one. Um, if I were running a team, um, I tell you what it would depend as well if you've got a paying driver or not. A paying driver generally ends up as the number two driver. So I don't think it's a hard and fast rule. I would have equal number ones if I was running a team and that I could give them equal equipment. Brilliant. What that do you thing? think? Oh, gosh, that's, that's a, it's a good, it's a good <laughs> question, isn't it? Um, you've obviously yeah. thought about it. Yeah, I mean, if we go back to, funny enough, you, you were saying how you lost a couple of championships back yeah. in the 80s, but it was in 86 when you had PK and Mansell joint number one. Mm. Um, and in fact, they obviously took wins off each other and, and Prost ended up winning the championship in, in, in the last race, didn't he, in, in, in Australia. Yeah. So it kind of worked against them as well. So I think for the sport, it's better to have two number ones as a spectator. But I imagine from a team's point of view, be much easier if you had a, a clear number one and, and number two because yes well, i imagine yeah the they, they wouldn't take each other out so often like rosberg and lewis did yes a few times 
but it makes for good racing. But and, but don't forget though, there is always a proviso that they have to follow team orders if they're told to give way. Yes. Yeah. And which they do now and again. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank, thank you for that, Neil. That's a fantastic answer. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. I've got a question. Yeah. I just wondered what you would do and what you would change to make F1 more competitive. Well, how long we got? Three hours? <laughs> <laughs> okay. You see, the problem with Formula One now is that it's got way too technical. You see, although we were dominant back in the Honda days, when I look at those cars then and now, those cars were relatively simple. The computer and data technology has raced away and the development in wind tunnels has raced away with the result that we now have um, most teams not really able to afford to go racing, but they're all racing or borrowed money or hoping to get to the top and get the biggest slice of the cake at the end of the year. So I would simplify the whole thing. In fact, next year, of course, we, we are going some way towards that. We're going back to ground effect and less influence of all the wings. Having said that, I don't think they're going to simplify the front wing enough. If you look at the crazy front wings now, I mean, they are ridiculous. So I'd, I'd, I'd offer the drivers a standard profile of wings for a start. Um, I think the engine technology is, is fine. I mean, the engines now, they're very, I mean, they cost a fortune. Um, and we're, it's crazy. You can't imagine that we're doing the whole season on three engines, although they take a penalty now and again. But, I mean, we had engine blow-ups years ago. I mean, we were running high-rev engines. These turbo engines, they're not high-revving. They're very reliable. And actually, um, I have to say that they do add to the efficiency of road cars because... We have race engines now. I think Mercedes did a race engine that ran 50% efficiency from the fuel in to using the energy. So how would I reduce the cost? I would I would get rid of all the, uh, the 2.1 second pit stops. I would give them standard guns and I would give them standard jacks and let the mechanics, you know, do the job. It would be just as competitive. Um, it, it's risky at the moment. It often goes wrong. That's one thing I'd change. I'd reduce the wings. I'd simplify the cars. Um, I'd I'd bring about um, gear changing with a gear lever. Yes, here, here. Yes. Right. We have Having said that, we've got cars on the road with DSG gearboxes, which are the same as the race boxes. In fact, you could argue the race boxes help to develop the DSG. Dual shift gearbox, dual shift gearboxes now. Racing helped to develop those. But I would I put the gear lever back. I mean, the technology has gone crazy. I'd reduce it all. And I'm very disappointed that dear old Ross Braun, a clever guy, I thought when he went in with a Liberty uh, to, to help in the sport to bring the cost down, he's fallen way short. And McLaren included really can't afford to go racing. They're all on on the edge and we need Formula One to continue. So they need to grab it by the horns and make it simpler. And um, that's what I do. Um, also, I think I'd 
address the tyre issue. I mean, it's interesting. The tyres are engineered to do a job. The regulation of having to run both types of tyres, I'd, 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 I'd say you've got to run the race on one tyre. Yes. Why not? Yes. You do a hard tyre and make it run the race, and then it'd be down to the driver how they managed it. So a lot of things they could change, and they need to. What do you think? Great, yeah, thanks. So I like the idea about the, the tyres and yeah. how that's such a different dynamic to what it's currently at. That would be interesting. Right. And also I like the idea of simplifying it. So I think wouldn't that make it more sort of driver-skilled based than... Yeah. The idea of just because you've got a better wind tunnel doesn't mean you, then you win more, if that makes sense. The problem is that it's difficult to slow technology and development. These cars are fighter planes on the ground. The technology of these cars is equal to a fighter plane. And Formula One teams build what is effectively a new fighter plane every year, whereas the aircraft industry take 10 years to develop a fighter plane. So... That's how crazy it is. Anyway, it's, a, it's an interesting question, the right question, not a simple answer, but I think... Yeah, thank you. Okay, great. Um, could you tell us something about the atmosphere in the team after Senna and Prost collided in Suzuka in 1989? Uh, okay, they, they collided in... Uh, yeah, 89. Yeah, they also collided in 1990, didn't they? Okay, in 89, well, that, don't forget the atmosphere had been created before then. The atmosphere was created in Imola when um, Ayrton broke the pact that uh, whoever got off the line first would have a free run into the first corner without having to protect the corner. So at Imola, they had an agreement, that agreement, and the race started, and Ayrton got a good start, and Elaine Julie went in behind, but the race was stopped, and on the restart, Elaine got the better start and went down to the first corner, and Ayrton, uh, Elaine left the door open because he thought there was an agreement, and Ayrton charged down the inside, and they, that was it. They never spoke again, were never on the same good terms again until just before Ayrton was killed, sadly, in Imola in 94. They sort of made up and, and were on friendly terms. But for Alain, that was the break of a, that broken pledge. So, so um, when it ended the year in Suzuka, I think Alain intended to do that. And why not? You know, he shut the door on Ayrton. And they both went off. Um, so what was the atmosphere in the team? Well, we could see it coming. You know, we were watching the big screen in the pits and we and with a few laps to go before the accident, we said, this is, this is not going to go well. <laughs> this is going to end up badly. And sure enough, it did. So it was awful because eventually after an hour or so when when the FIA had ruled that uh, Ayrton was disqualified and uh, Alain effectively became world champion we couldn't really celebrate so it wasn't the right way to finish the season it was pretty awful but you know they hadn't they hadn't been on good terms from mid-year on so uh, we weren't aware of that side as mechanics 
people like Joe Ramirez and the management, they were aware of it. But in the garage, um, we, uh, you know, the, as as mechanics on each car, we all got on equally. And um, the drivers weren't, you know, at each other's throats in the garage. I think it was not um, very joyous in the debris in the truck, but um, we weren't aware of it. But we certainly were aware of it after Japan. And then, of course, we went to Australia, and um, before the race, it poured with rain, and Elaine refused to get in the car for the race. And that I was involved in that as chief mechanic, and that was a bit embarrassing. In the end, Ron said, to, Ron was on the grid. I was in the garage with Elaine saying on the radio, Ron says, you have to get in the car. Elaine said, I'm not driving in these conditions. I said, Ron says, you have to get in the car. Eventually, he got in the car. Did one lap and came in, came in the garage and got out, and that was it. He went on to Ferrari. Tricky times. <laughs> wow. That answers the question. Yeah. Thank you. That's very interesting. Ben? Thank you. Ben, are you there, ben? Um, uh, how many people in the team? So, how many people did you have in the team in the eighties? Sorry, speak up. Put your... How how many how many people were in the team in 1980s? How many people were on the team? Oh, yeah. okay. Um, obviously, a lot smaller than now. Um, so, but back in the day, we had three cars in the garage. Now you're only allowed two cars in the garage, and one car's sort of a spare chassis in a box. So we ran what is known as a T car, training car, and the use of that car was. Um, was drawn out of a hat at the beginning of the year. So we had 16 races. So in the hat, we'll put all the races and then Ayrton would pick a race out and Elaine and Ayrton and Elaine. And that decided who had the priority of that for that of that T car for that particular race. So in having three cars, we had three mechanics on each car. So that was nine guys. We had a tire guy, 10. We had a fuel guy, 11. Joe Ramirez is team coordinator, 12. I was chief mechanic, 13. I suppose the whole team at the track was about 20 or 23. Now it's, oh, 30, 40. A lot of, lot of marketing people, of course. But again, that's where cost has escalated. But, um, yeah, we were, we were a small team at the track, and we were also a small number of people in the garage. Uh, uh, sorry, um, at the factory. Not like now. I mean, you know, you've got you know, more than a thousand people in, in the factory. What have we got? 1,500, 1,700 in the factory. If you look online somewhere, there's a photo of Ayrton from 1988, end of the season, and he's posing with the whole factory, all gathered around the car. And there's about 100, 160 people. That's because of the technology, because the cars were simple then, and you could also buy in lots of standard components. Now, everything is made and designed. Thank you. Okay. I was just going to ask, when, in your opinion, would you say was the heyday of Formula One? Oh, that's a good question. I can see you now, so with cricket bats on the wall. Yeah. You are, who are you? You are... I'm Ed. Sorry, who? Ed. Ed? Yeah. Okay. Hi, Ed. Um, the heyday of Formula One. 
Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, I don't know if there has been a heyday. Maybe it's a heyday now. Um, I suppose a heyday is when you have the most number of spectators and followers. Um, well, heyday for me, heyday for me, I guess, was the Honda Senna Prost era for me. Um, oh, Jimmy Clark. I'll tell you what was a good time in Formula One when you were allowed to be adventurous with cars and there weren't technical regulations. You know, we had high wings, we had ground effect come in, turbo cars. You could, but now, you know, somebody once said, if you took all the color off the race cars now, if you painted them all black, complete, wings, everything, and you ask the drivers to walk to their car, they wouldn't know which one was which because they all look very similar. So I guess the heyday was when the regulations weren't as tight and you could do some crazy stuff with cars. Yeah. So what period was that? Well, that was that was 78 with the Lotus ground effect, the six wheel Tyrrell, those kind of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say the only difference I see in the, the cars now is the shape in the nose and how long they are. Yeah, that's it. And they are ridiculous. Well, I say they're ridiculously long. We mustn't forget that the length of them now has come about because of all the safety features, the crushable structure in the front, which um, the length has come from the mainly from the crushable chassis and nose. Yeah, I guess. What's your view of heyday? The heyday for you when you look back? Well, I, I haven't been around as long as you have. No, but, but um, I'd say the time where I've enjoyed Formula One the most watching from my point of view, has been this season. But sort of looking back and hearing what people have said about Formula One in the 80s and yeah. the 90s, even like the early noughties when Schumacher was dominating. Yeah. Even there, it, it sounds brilliant. And um, I wish I could have sort of been around then to watch the races. I've got a question. Do you guys, um, do you study the history of racing? Uh, you know, you read books and watch old footage or you really up with the modern stuff i'm interested in in what happened during the 80s and 90s right. um, i read articles about it that sort of thing yeah um but then i'm i'm very um interested and excited about what's happening at the moment as well well it's close season i mean and isn't that what we all want in racing or in any sport to go down the Sorry, wire I just want to say, yeah just before i just before i forget who yeah. do you think will be on top uh, Verstappen Hamilton this season. Just I, before I forget the question, I think uh, for for several reasons. I think Verstappen, because he's as good as Lewis now, almost. Um, the team is they have Adrian Newey, and um, you know it's it begs the question, right? What is it that makes a champion? Is it the driver or the car? And what percentage is attributable to to that? I I think it's common opinion in the last 10, 15 years that the car maketh the driver. So the driver is probably, you know, 20%. But so, so in that, um, with Red Bull and Mercedes, 
Adrian Newey is the master of aerodynamics. And not only that, but he doesn't go to the racetrack because he likes dining out in the restaurants in the evening. He goes because he knows how to set a race car up. He is amazing at it. Um, so I think the setup of the car, I think Red Bull get it better. I think Verstappen is as good as Lewis now. And, um, but what is obvious now is that um, Honda really got their act together as they did back in the day with us. When Honda put their mind to it and give it enough effort and give it a little bit of time to develop, I think Honda are doing an amazing job. So I, I think Verstappen's going to do it. Thank you. Sorry to butt in. I just. No, no, it's good. Sorry, I forgot. Good question. Yeah. Neil, <clears throat> uh, no, another question from me. Um, which drivers have you worked with whose talent wasn't reflected in their results? Yes. Okay. Um, um, so, well, Joachim Rin, he won the world championship, sadly yes. died, but yeah. Joachim was another Schumacher, Lewis. Joachim Rint was amazing. Um, drivers that never, well, not necessarily have I worked with uh, Chris Amon for a start. You've got to be right place at right time to win a, a world championship. The 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 ingredients are quite simple and straightforward. You've got to have um, one of the top drivers. You've got to have the right designer. You've got to have the right engine. You've got to have the right tires. You've got to have reliability. And if you have all those together in one year, you've got a good chance of winning the championship. So Chris Amon was one of the top drivers back in the 60s. And he was always in the wrong place at the wrong time. So was Dan Gurney. So these are drivers. I only worked with Dan Gurney once. Um, these are drivers that were never in the right car at the right time. John Surtees only driver to win the world championship on two wheels and four wheels he only won one championship with ferrari but then he moved on and he never got in the right car um who else have i worked with that never made it um what, what were you um what about michael andretti uh, in his stint at McLaren? Uh, yeah okay um i've got very strong opinions on michael okay. he was good all the way coming through the formula um he was good in indycar but when he came to us in formula one we shortchanged him um he came with uh, kmart sponsorship yeah and um it was an unfortunate year in 93 when we were having to buy our engines from cosworth and pay for every service and rebuild and we couldn't really afford that so he was very limited on his testing we never gave him the right testing he never had enough mileage in formula one the other thing was he thought he could do what his dad did his dad um back in when he was in formula one flew backwards and forwards to america michael tried to do the same and he was never it was never on the ball he was never fresh enough in the car but he just didn't have enough mileage. He had a few inspired races. He had a good one at Monza, 
Donington yes. in the yeah Donington in the wet. Um, he was flying, but he came together with oh, I can't remember who, but German driver and Frenson, I think it was Heinz Alfred Frenson. You know, he might have been up there with Ayrton. The car was very good in '93 in the wet. So Michael, he was good, and look what he did in IndyCar. Yeah. As you say, at the end of his year, McLaren, he started to get some results, but by, by, by that time, I guess it was too late. Well, if you remember, he didn't do the full season because... Oh, I forgot that. Gosh. Yeah, Hakkinen came along at Estoril. Yes, yes of course he did, yes. Yeah, in fact, we still owe Michael um, three or four races as part of the contract, <laughs> which he never came back and knocked on the door and said, hey, where's my drive? He'd probably come back in the next race and say, you owe me a drive. But he was good. But there have been yeah. lots of drivers that should have made it. Tom Price was real quick. Um, he was in the shadow, sadly, died in South Africa. He was one of my drivers in Formula 2. Oh, really? Stefan Johansson, he was quick. Um, yes. But he, he came to McLaren in 87, the last year of the tag turbo engine, when the Honda was had the edge on us. And uh, if he'd have been there the year before, uh, John Watson should have been a world champion. Well, he's um, 82. Yeah, he should have been. Yeah. Um, didn't quite, you know, the car wasn't quite up to it. Didn't have the right engine. So, um, and of course, Sterling Moss never had a world championship. He should have, he was second three times. So it's all about right place, right time. Um, it's, it's difficult. When you look at the grid now, you think, well, George Russell, there's him. There's, if he hadn't had that drive in that, um, although he was a Mercedes contractor driver, if he hadn't had that drive when Lewis was ill, would he have, would he have got in the seat um, next year? Yeah. But there is the doors open for him. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Tricky one. Um, I'd like to ask, uh, what is your favourite memory from your uh, career with McLaren? If, oh. if you could pick one, that is. One memory or one C? One memory? Uh, well, we'll go for one memory, but if there's two that really stand Let's go out, for one, one memory. On the 30th of October, that was last week, 33 years ago, I stood in the pits and Ayrton won the World Championship. And that was my first Formula One World Championship. Nice. So nice. for me, I guess that was the pinnacle of my formula one career because i came off the team um end of 89 having won two championships so um yeah so the 89 championship for Lane that was a bit hollow the 88 one for ayrton and for me and the team that was one of one of the highlights of my career yeah yeah that's really cool another highlight was when i formed my formula three team in 81 and I formed it with that Mexican driver that I said, and he came over to England and he hadn't raced single seats as much, only a little bit in Mexico. And he was, he was a bit lost. He wasn't quick and um, he was nowhere. But fortunately, after a couple of races, a Belgian driver named Thierry Tassen came to me and he said, I'm driving for Argo, but the car is not competitive. And they've said, I can switch teams because they realise that they're spoiling my chances. So he came to me and I built him a car, a second car. So we became a two car team. 
And uh, so we missed the first four races of the championship. But uh, so he came to me. We did Mallory Park and he was running about fourth. But the next race, he won in my own car, my team car. And that for me was another highlight. You know, I, a lot of mechanics would agree when you work on a car and you work so hard and get it ready for a race and the driver wins, you do it for nothing because it's just such a great feeling to know you're part of that. So, and that's what racing, that's the passion, you know? So all the wins I've had have been good, but there were some special ones. And I guess 88 was the one. And, and we, so we, last week we all hooked up and said 33 years ago when we remember you know a bit of nostalgia um we remember partying that night we all ate together in the log cabin in japan which was um, like a, a western restaurant next to the circuit and ayrton was there and gave her burger and then afterwards ayrton didn't go off with his girlfriend around town, he joined us all and we all um, had quite a few drinks. We went in this gaming room and they had boxing games and, and he just went crazy. He And he was with us guys all, all the evening until about three, four in the morning. <clears throat> so, you know, that was the um, that was the nature of the guy. He, and Berger was just as wild. Those two were great pals. They always were friends and used to party and play pranks and used to have play tricks on each other, but they got on really well. Yeah. So that was a highlight. Yeah. 88. Yeah. Cool. So I've got a question. Tell me about you guys. So you're all studying engineering or what? I'm interested in it. I'm not studying a GCSE or anything, but. Oh, you're right. Yeah. But you're all doing the right school and, and, and you all have a passion for racing. Otherwise you oh, wouldn't yeah. have. Yeah. How did you how did you get together to do this with Tom? Whose ideas were it? Was it Tom's or it was Mr. Burns? It was, Mr. Burns. It was my Mr. idea Burns. actually. Oh, it was, was it? Yeah. Okay, Mr. Burns, well done. Yeah, 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 yeah. Was... We all realised we loved F1 and just motorsport in general, and he was like, "Oh, why don't we just record our ramblings?" Okay, so... another question then: Who drives go karts? Not, not enough money. It's too expensive. Not enough. <laughs> too expensive. <laughs> Yeah, well, it depends what level you're doing at. If you go and do some um, outdoor stuff at Sandown, you know, pay carts, it's, you know, birthday presents, Christmas presents. So none of you fancy being a Formula One driver then? I think we've I left think... it a bit too late. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was me, but I don't, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not my total desire now, but uh, it would be just like, it's like a thing I'd like to do. But... Your, um, your microphone is not, it, the others are clear, but yours is not transmitting um, very well. Put in Sorry. your email. Yeah, that's better. Um, <laughs> I mean, I would like to, but I just I just don't feel that's where my heart's at. Um, other sports, you do other sports, you guys, I suppose. Yeah, football. Yeah. School. And okay. Tom's into hockey, isn't he? Not into Formula One. 
Yeah, well, no, clearly I'm interested in motorsport yeah. uh, and it's great producing the show. And uh, I, I now, now I'm at uni, I, I, I video call Joe uh, if there's a, a race on or whatever. And uh, we, we watch that remotely together. Uh, but I know the reason you, you mentioned that because yesterday while we were testing the video call, I was on my way to hockey training. I am on the, the hockey team <laughs> here, here, here at Salem. But, um, <laughs> well, but yeah, I mean. So that's my family's interest. My son. Uh, Tiago Tig personal training down in um, you may have heard of him down in Chichester he's a personal trainer um, I always thought he was going to be my young son race driver but uh, actually it saved me a lot of money but I'd have given him the best <laughs> shot um, but he was never that interested I gave him a little test drive in a car with a friend of mine and he was very adaptive it but he never took it up he was always into football and rugby and all that stuff and now he's now the whole family play hockey my all my grandsons they went to churches college and uh they all captains of churches and they play for haven't and my daughter-in-law plays uh, for haven't as well ladies so that's the hockey side the racing side i haven't got a grandson yet that's going to uh, be a Formula One race driver. Although my um, one of my grandsons, Bailey, who works for Aldi as a manager of the stores, he is as quick as hell. And so when we go karting, which we do occasionally, indoor stuff and that, there's always a race between him and me, and he always beats me by a tenth or so. <laughs> so next year, um, I'm going to get a race car of some description. I'm going to share it with Bailey, and we're going to go racing. So... So you guys are not going to be Formula One drivers then. Well, you might end up as Formula One designers and earn a lot. They, 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 How much? They, they, they could be commentators, possibly. They could be commentators, yes. Yeah, well, they're good speakers. Yeah, you're all good speakers. Yeah, How much do you have? Uh, about, yeah. about 10 years ago, we had a boy at our school who was a cartist, yeah. and he went on to win the Formula Ford Festival. No um, way. What's his name? James. James Raven. Yeah. James Raven. Right. right. See, and now he's uh, won the, well, he won the Formula Four Festival. So that was always the stepping stone up into, into Formula Three, Formula yes. Two, and then Formula One. But nowadays, it's such a tough route in, you know. It is. I mean, the, yeah. the last I heard of him, he was about two or three years ago, he was racing Formula Four in America. And that's the yeah. last I, I sort of heard of him. Okay. So well, I don't, well, then he probably end up as an IndyCar driver. And, yes. <laughs> but I have to say, although it's a lot safer now, but IndyCar racing is probably one of the most dangerous forms of racing that exists because the speeds are so high and slipstreaming and flat-out ovals. And, uh, I mean, imagine doing an oval and you're going around in a, what is it, in a minute, you know, a lap in a minute. You're just going around in a circle. But they're quick, but, but they make good money. Drivers are making a fortune now. I mean, well, in all sports, you know, tennis, whatever. But, but back in the day, they didn't make that kind of money. But. Max, are we? Max, are you there? Max? I am here. I am here. Right. Still there. Okay. Excellent. There, um, were a few no, other que- there were a few other questions on the table on that list if someone wants to. It's a, it's, Max, a good way, Max. it's a good way to open up the conversation, the questions, and then we'll. Yes. Right. Yes. Right. So are there any qualities which all world champions have in common? 
Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, they have to be young. <laughs> so they can't start like Graham Hill did at 35 years old or whatever. They have to be young. Um, they have to be short. They can't be more than six foot tall. Right. So they've got to be um, probably on average about five, six, five, seven. They've got to be light because the the minimum weight is the car and the driver. So they can't be uh, like, um, you know, 16 stone. Oh, what stone? What am I talking about? Let's say kilo. They can't be over 100 kilo. They've got to be less than 80 kilo, really, or 85 kilo. I think um, uh, Daniel Ricardo is about 82, 83 kilo, but most of them are less than that. Right. They've got to be ambitious. They have got to, um, huh, they've got to have good eyesight because there's not one driver in Formula One now that wears glasses. Whereas back years ago, Maston Gregory and a few of the others wore glasses, Diadamich. Um, what else? They, they haven't got to be strong. Um, and I tell you what else they haven't got to be. They haven't got to be male or female because mm. the cars are not hard to drive now in terms of strength. You've got to have um, stamina with the G-force, but you haven't got to be strong in your arms. So there's there's no reason in the world why a quick girl, lady, shouldn't be competing against the guys in Formula One. So um, we'll, we'll come back to that one if you like later. But what else they got to be? Um, they got to be lucky to have the right brakes. Lewis got the right brakes. Some drivers pay to come in. George Russell got a good break, but George Russell was quick on the way up. But his parents obviously funded him initially. So you've got to have the money to start off and you've got to have some luck. But you've got to be a good instincts. Okay, what is it that makes a quick driver? Okay, you can't put your finger on it. He's got to have good instinct. He's got to have good balance, good reactions. But what is it? So a quick race driver, he's the tightrope walker, right? He's the same as a guy walking a tightrope. So the guy on the tightrope is, he's got, so a tightrope walker without a beam, uh, you know, a pole to steady him a solo tightrope walker. So he's got this fine balance and he can walk that wire. So the racing driver on the track, he's got to have that balance of the car, not sliding. He's got to have that fine balance and use all the track. So he's got to have all these talents. And, um, but most of all, he's got to have the brakes and the luck. You know, um, Dennis Jenkinson, a famous motor racing author who's sadly dead now but dennis jenkinson um just as a, a side interest he was the co-driver of sterling moss in the mila Melia in 1955 um sterling moss was a great journalist and he said there is a, a world champion racing driver plowing the fields in siberia 
but he doesn't know he can do it. He, do, he doesn't know he can get in that car and have that whatever it takes to be quick. So, yeah, he's got to have all those things. And I'm sure that there's hundreds of drivers have got that on their way up. They just haven't got that one of those ingredients, and that is the money or the right brakes. Now, I know uh, Neil we... asked a minute ago um, who fancies being a racing driver. Having just heard Neil describe what a racing driver needs, anyone feel like they, they've got what it takes? <laughs> oh, I think I'm going for my interview. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I'll tell you oh what I've God. seen in some race drivers. I've seen some of them that have amazing talents for certain things. Um, Ronnie Peterson and um, who else? There were a couple of race drivers, and at the track they they ride around on a unicycle. I think Lewis can ride a unicycle. Lewis, and yeah, Andy can. They have these they have these talents, you know, they're natural talents. Um, so. Yeah, but then, yeah, are they different? I don't know. There's there's probably hundreds of guys walking the streets of London as office workers that could get in the car. Actually, leading on from sort of very talented drivers, you maybe didn't get the right brakes. Um, what about a chap called, is it Tommy Byrne? Was it yeah. Tattoo? Didn't they have a test with McLaren at the end of the year? Yes, yeah. I knew him quite, I knew him very well. Have you read his book? Have you read his book, Crash and no, I, I saw a program about him a couple of years ago. Okay, and you have to read his book as well, his autobiography called Crashed and Burned. So yes. Tommy Byrne uh, was an Irishman. The kid film killed Kenny or something he called himself. Hmm. He was a wild Irish kid who raced cars around the streets, uh, but he had this God-given talent. He could drive anything quick. So... He, he uh, and he was a wheeler dealer as well. He's a bit like Eddie Jordan. He could find money. So he's a wheeler dealer. A little, I wouldn't say a crook, uh, but he could get money um, from various sources. And he got backed by a couple of Irishmen, friends of his, and jumped in a Formula 4 car and instantly was on the pace. And um, moved his way up in Formula Ford, obviously had exactly what it took. Got into Formula 3 with um, Murray Taylor in a Rolt. Uh, it was a good car. He had a good engine. And he won the F3 championship. Mm. Now, McLaren's for years have run the Autosport Award where the winning F3 championship driver got a test drive in a Formula 1 car. So Ayrton Senna got it and uh, um, various others. But So Tommy Byrne got his test drive in the McLaren. And it was an MP41B, I think. So, well, I'll tell you when it was, because it was in end of 82. Yeah. Yes. Yep. So it was MP41B, Cosworth engine car. Um, they put the setup on it and gave him a, a driver fitting. And he went out and within sort of 10 laps, He'd beaten John Watson. Oh, John Watson did a bogey time, set a time. Yep. He was under the time, and it would have put him fourth on the grid for the Grand Prix. Wow. Uh, so, and he said the car wasn't perfect. He said, but I, it, it had a bit of understeer, so he said I turned it in a bit earlier and flicked it a bit and got it just balanced right, and he said it was a piece of cake to drive. <laughs> 
he had the natural talent. So typical Tommy, uh, he wasn't well, very well scored and he didn't have a good right-hand man, not manager necessarily, but he didn't have anyone to guide him. So um, he went uh, post-test, he went to Ron Dennis's office, as, as they all do, and Ron sat him down and just started talking with it with him. And he said, um, so he said, um, you might um, get the chance to drive our T car at a race. And Tommy said, what's a T car? And Ron thought, well, here he is in racing. And he obviously hasn't followed Formula One. And he doesn't know what the T car is, which is the third car. So I don't think that impressed Ron. And also, Tommy was cocky. I knew him from, he was in Formula 3 when I had my team and he was pretty racy, you know, he was, he was very loud and he was aggressive and, um, but he was the life and soul of a party, you know. So anyway, then Ron said to him, and this is not common knowledge, so what we talk about here, guys, you know, we don't want to be putting out on the airwaves, so you might cut this out, Tom. (laughs) Because I'm going to put it in my book. I'm doing a book, you see, so I've got to save something for the book. So, so Ron said, so tell me, Tommy, what um, makes you think you should drive in Formula One with me? And Tommy said, because I am the best driver you'll ever get. And Ron said, okay. And out he went and Ron decided he didn't fit the 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 sort of the, the McLaren mm. sort of standards or, you know. So uh, he never got the drive. And then he drove for, um, oh, he drove for a, a small uh, F1 team, but he never yeah. made it. Uh, and he didn't go to IndyCar, which he should have also done. He went to Mexico. Yeah. He raced in the Mexico Championship. Obviously, he was fairly dominant. He yeah. got into booze and drugs. Mm. Uh, got into gunfights, lucky to get out alive, and lost his wife. Uh, I mean, lost his wife, broke up his wife. His whole life was a mess. Now he's realizes it, and he's a dead straight guy, you know, trying to live his life with. And he's got kids now, I think. But he he realizes he blew it. Yeah. So that's Tommy Byrne. He's another star. Yeah. I didn't work with him, but he he was a star in the making. Ben, ben? Um, which of the cars you've worked with, worked on, has been your favourite and why? Yeah, okay. Well, obviously, the, the first carbon chassis car, MP41, which I built from the chassis mould from scratch with other guys, of course, but and that turned out to be an amazing car. So it's not just one car. Mm. Um, that car which we've still got at McLaren's MP41 chassis one. It's uh, just a piece of history. And I was a part of it, very much a part of it. Um, and the other car, what's that? A head appeared on the screen. Another car, of course, was the six wheel, which I helped to build and develop. And um, I thought it was a beautiful car. So they're the, they're, they're the two cars. Yeah. Well, what was the thinking behind the, the the six wheel Tyrrell? What was the having those four small wheels? Yeah, well, it was a strange one. It was Derek Gardner's design, and Derek was a 
a clever designer, um, but he was a bit off the mark with that car. He thought that if you gave it a low frontal area mm. by pulling small front wheels, that it would have it'd be more slippery and have better air penetration. Mm. Um, so he suggested to Ken, and Ken thought, well, let's give it a go. Um, then they had to convince Goodyear to supply some tyres for it. And uh, when it hit the track, I mean, it was quick, but it wasn't quicker than... So we did a back-to-back with our four-wheel car, which was 007, and the six-wheeler, and it wasn't it wasn't quicker by a, you know any margin. It was about the same. But, of course, it was a great publicity vehicle, and Elf loved it, and Ken Tyrrell loved it, and he said, well, come on, let's go with it. We're going to get incredible publicity out of this, which they did. Um, but the thinking behind it was that. It was it was no quicker in a straight line. What it was uh, better in was in the wet, because the front tyres took some of the water away from the rear tyres. It had great front front tyre grip in the wet. Um, the year after, Goodyear didn't uh, continue the tyre development, and then eventually, and then it was banned by the FIA. But um, that was the thinking behind it. Thank you. Yeah, interesting. Thank you. Didn't um, didn't Williams experiment with a, a six-wheel car? Yeah, in- yeah, Williams and March as well. So they followed suit um, at the end of that year, but they didn't do four wheels at the front. They did four wheels at the back to give more rear grip. Yes. So they both built them, and then, <laughs> as the FIA do in some of these cases, before they'd run it and raced it on the track, they banned it. <laughs> FIA bans, um, yeah, had to have no more than four wheels. Yeah. So, and the FIA do that in, with a lot of things. You know, someone comes up with a brilliant idea, like the high wings on Formula One cars, which were incredible uh, downforce aid. The, the high wings they were in clean air and they were all met they were mounted on the suspension so the downforce went straight into the tires and not in the chassis so they didn't push the chassis down you didn't have to have stronger springs but um they were a bit fragile and the fia banned them they banned lots of things yeah interesting okay i think we're now going to move on to some questions uh, that listeners have sent in which is great and uh, just oh. a reminder for everyone listening as well, well you mean they uh, to- They've done it while we've been online. Uh, so we, we we we've pre pre warned some of our listeners, some of our regulars uh, about yeah. what what you, you coming on our show, uh, and uh, they, they've sent some questions in for you. We've got two for you, and just a reminder as well for everyone listening to get in touch with the show. You can tell us how amazing our interview with Neil was, uh, or how amazing our show is every single week on social media. Use the hashtag SJCPitStop, or you can email pitstop at stjohnscollege.co.uk. Um, Ed, you've got the first question, I think. Yeah, so this one's from Dave Anthony, and he says, what was it about Ron Dennis that made him so successful, and what was he like to work with? <laughs> okay. Um, what what made him so successful? He was a driven man. He was single-minded, worked 24-7, um, great innovator, never stopped trying to improve things in Formula One and for our team. Um, he could 
It was very good at talking to sponsors and getting money in. Um, he was clever. You know, I said about putting this jigsaw of everything together to the engine, drivers, tires, designers. He could think ahead two or three years and and plan these people coming in all together. And when they happened, we generally won the championship. He was clever at putting that all together. Um, sadly, at the end, it all became, it all overtook him a bit. It, Formula One got a bit big and um, we lost our main sponsors. Don't forget now, the, or I should point out now, apart from Red Bull um, and actually Marlborough, because Marlborough are back in Ferrari uh, behind the scenes, but there's no big sponsors now. But when we have big sponsors like West Cigarettes, Marlborough, all these people, Ron could put on an amazing show for them. And he he was he's Mr. Do you know Barnum Bailey is? Barnum Bailey, you guys? Barnum Bailey was the he ran Barnum Bailey Circus. He could put on a show. So Ron is the showman. Mm-hmm. Right. And his attention to detail is unbelievable. Right. But what does he what's he like to work with? He's very hard. Uh, well, he, he's he's a great great guy. I mean, we've worked alongside each other. Um, he and I were partners. Um, but he's very single-minded, and he doesn't suffer fools. And uh, he's push, 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 push. So you've got to keep up with him. So he's hard work to work with, but he enjoys success, and he knows how to uh, how to create that. So he's. He's an amazing guy. He's one of many guys in the world to achieve this stuff. Um, I'm, I'm a bit um, bemused by the fact he's never been knighted because Frank Williams was knighted and so have other people have been knighted. But uh, but he's not bothered about that. He just he strives for success. He's totally ambitious, but very difficult to work with. Sometimes... You feel the wrath of his, um, you know, <laughs> that you haven't quite att- attended to something like it should be. But anyway, yeah. he's a special guy. Excellent. Uh, <clears throat> Finn, I think it's the last right. question. Finn, this, yeah. this, this is a question from Stephen Bird. Um, how did the merger between Project 4 and McLaren come about? And will Project 4 become a, have become an F team, F1 team without the merger with McLaren? Okay, that's a good question. Very good question. Um, so we'd already started building the Formula One car, Project Four, but we were certainly getting a bit strapped for money. Uh, the chassis was built. We were doing the suspension. Would we have had enough money at Project Four to enter Formula One? Well, we we hadn't found the big sponsor, but at the time we were very involved with Marlborough in our Formula Three team, in our Pro Car team and our F2 team. So we had Marlborough with Stephanie Johansson in Formula 3. We had Marlborough with Nicky Lauda in the pro car. And we had Marlborough with De Cesaris in the Formula 2 car. So we were very much involved with Marlborough. And I think I mentioned before, uh, uh, but in answer to this um, court listener's question, just to remind ourselves that McLaren were really struggling to be competitive for those years. Um, 78, 79, 80. 
they were rock bottom. The car wasn't competitive. They'd lost their way. So John Hogan and Marlborough said to McLaren, look, uh, Project 4 have got this incredible car. It hasn't run the track yet, obviously, but it's looking very innovative. They've got John Barner, the designer. Um, and we think you need to amalgamate. What they really meant was that Ron is a mover and shaker, and they knew that, Marlborough knew that if Ron got into McLaren, he would make things happen. And so uh, that's how the merger came about. Marlborough said to McLaren, you will amalgamate. And they resisted it. At McLaren's, you had Teddy Mayer, Gordon Coppock, um, Pat McLaren, um, Tyrell Alexander. Uh, you had all these, there were about eight directors, and they thought, oh, my God, you know, Ron Dennis is coming in. He's going to take our jobs, which he did effectively, but they all got paid off in the end. But uh, so that's how the merger came about. Thank you very much. Um, one more question. Sorry, one more question. Hamilton and Verstappen are the two main protagonists in F1 right now. Mm -hmm. Who do you think will be leaders in the sport in the future? Oh, it's obvious. Um, Lewis, <laughs> he's not on the slide, but Lewis is um, is obviously uh, towards the end of his career. He's not the twilight of his career, and he's he's doing well to keep up <laughs> like he is. Um, but he'll move on. So Verstappen will come in then. Um, Russell will, <laughs> we'll see what George can do with Mercedes. Depends what Mercedes chassis is like. I mean, it'd be an interesting if George Russell had been driving the Red Bull. Perez is, is good, but he's not up with Verstappen. So you can have Verstappen, Russell, um, I mean, um, Daniel Ricciardo, he, he'd hate me to say it, but he's obviously and he's towards the end of his career. But you've got some young guys coming in, and, and that's important. The, I think the older guys, I'm glad Raikkonen's moved on because he was taking money and a place which should have gone to a young driver. Yeah. Um, so I can't see the obvious other than Verstappen. I mean, you could end up with Verstappen being dominant for the next five, six years like Schumacher was. And Lewis has been so, um, but that's the way the sport is, you know. It goes in these these peaks, but we want some we want some young, quick drivers coming in, and they've got to give them the chance. Latifi and those guys, they're pay drivers, you know. They're good, but are they? Gasly, Gasly's good. If you put Gasly back in the Red Bull, I mean, Gasly lost his driver. If you put him back in the Red Bull, he might be up with Verstappen. Who knows? Go back to your yeah, Going back to your previous point, if, if we had, as you said, if we had three cars per team, that would mean we get more drivers up from Formula 2. That It seems to be very few Formula, Formula 2 drivers make it into Formula 1. Well, that's they have to nice. go sideways to Formula E, don't they? Yeah, well, you've got Mick Schumacher, who's come in. I mean, he was quick in Formula 2, won the championship, but put him into F1 and it's it's a big step for some of them. Um, having said that, sometimes it only takes something to just suddenly wait, you know, for them to get on the, on the, oh, of course, I'm missing out. Lando, aren't I? Lando Norris. Oh, there we go. Of course, Lando. Sorry, mate. He's an up-and-coming star. He's just such a nice guy. Quick as hell. Who else am I forgetting? Come on, you, you need to tell me. Um, 
other teams. Um, who? Ed, you're good and young drivers, Ed. You know about the Formula 2 guys? Yeah, well, currently you've got Guan Yu Zhou. He's quite quick at the moment. Yeah. Yastri. He's been yeah. good this season. Um, who Albon. Got? Albon. Right. Albon lost his drive, but he's coming back. Albon was quick all the way through the Formula. Um, World Cup Championship. And, um, yeah, put Albon back in a Red Bull. He'd probably do it now. Nick mm. That 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 Formula E, uh, I've forgotten his name, the Mercedes yeah. Formula E driver. Oh, um, Nick, Nick DeVries. Nick DeVries. Yeah. yeah, he's a good kid. He was our, he was a young McLaren driver because McLaren's had some drivers that way they were backing. Yeah. I'll tell you a driver who's missed it, Ben Barnicote. Ben Barnicote was as good as Lewis and all of them. He never got oh, the right. drive. He was quicker than Nick DeVries. Well, I, I hoped that Nick DeVries would have got George Russell's drive at Williams next year, but they put Albon back in it. I don't know how that happened, but anyway, that's all about uh, the politics. What do you think of uh, Charles Leclerc, uh, Ferrari? Oh, yeah. Well, he's quick. Yeah, of course. Um, and, oh, oh, and Carlos Sainz. Carlos Sainz is quick. You, Carlos was up with Lando in our car. Carlos was up with him. Um, Charles Leclerc, yeah, well, it's, it's all about, you know, the Ferrari's not the best car at the moment. So if Sainz was in our car this year, I think he would be quicker than Daniel. Would he be as good as Lando? Don't know. I think Lando would be quicker than him. But it's, um, yeah, right place, right time, isn't it? Yeah. That's what it's, it's all about. That's the case, isn't it? Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Neil. That's uh, been such a fascinating chat. I mean, it was worked quite nice as well. We started looking back at what you've done in your career. We've ended looking forward to the future of Formula One. And I think it's also promising because we've practically just listed the entire Formula One grid about future <laughs> possible world champions. So that and surely yeah. we've got some good seasons to come. Before you go, you mentioned as well, you've got a book on the way. I think I'm right in saying as well, you're involved in Goodwood. Where can people find more more from you okay well i'm trying to write the book but it's not easy because i'm trying to learn to uh, touch type at the moment uh, <laughs> which is i mean i'm scribbling it on paper and it's only when we talk like this and with my colleagues in racing if we do get together that it all comes out so to sit down cold it's, it's difficult so i've loved doing this because it inspires me and it also in conversation stuff comes out so I'm trying to do the book. Um, I'm doing a talk at Brooklands on December the 9th in the evening. Um, it's a chat with Steve, the, the um, events organiser. Other than that, um, I'm I'm on Facebook a little bit. and um, But yeah, we can do this again sometime. But we've covered a lot of ground, haven't we? Yeah, it's been great and you're welcome back on SJC Radio whenever you like you've got our email now so you can get in touch and we'll happily have you on I've enjoyed it and it's no, and you guys are obviously there's one hungry guy who's eating his sandwich there I haven't got a sandwich <laughs> I do have can you all see me by the way have you been able to see me all this time yes yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. You think unfortunately the listeners can't so explain explain for everyone on listening on the podcast on the radio Okay, well, you can't see me, but there's one of our, I can't, I can't remember your name, young sir, but he's eating his tea. Um, yeah. But this is not water, this is gin and tonic, so a small one. 
<laughs> but I've loved it. It's lovely chat, and it's you know it's my passion, and it's great that you guys are following the sport, and um, we can do it again sometime if you like. Tom, keep in touch. I look forward to uh, chatting to you again, and good luck with your program. Well done, Tom. You are another, um, you know, obviously DJing is going to be your forte in the future. Is that your career, Tom? <laughs> so I'm doing a degree. The degree is actually called live event technology. So I'm doing all the tech behind uh, delivering uh, stuff like this. Uh, but right. also, uh, I don't know, uh, I mean, graduates from the course I'm on at the minute uh, are actually in charge of Formula One. They work for Formula One and deliver it to uh, everyone on the TV and the radio side uh, every oh, year. Really? I think the head of technology of Formula One broadcasting is a graduate of our course because he uh, came and chatted to us over Zoom the other day from right. it's all done in London now. So, so you're going to you're going to show them this uh if, yeah I, you never know i'll drop a link in the chat and we'll, we'll see if we get anywhere but yeah so uh, yeah. I, I do deal with the tech side of stuff yeah um, but i wouldn't i'm not sure you should get involved in formula one i worry about formula one it's pricing itself out um and uh formula e will that will formula one become formula eight that's a whole subject we could talk for hours about electric cars electric vehicles but you've been great guys I mean, I hope you have. Um, Thank you very much. Who knows? Thank you. We may talk again. Thank you. Stay well, stay stay COVID free. (laughs) Thank you, Neil. It's been absolutely fascinating. Tom, my pleasure. God bless. Okay, thanks, Neil. Thank you. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to this episode of Pit Stop with Mr. Bird. There's a few new things I want to make you aware of. We've got a new website, which you can find by going online to shows.acast.com forward slash pitstop, where you can also find links to our Twitter and uh, on the about page, more information about the hosts as well. We're also on lots more platforms in addition to where you're listening to us now. So we're now on Spotify, Google Podcasts, iTunes, Apple Podcasts and Amazon Music and lots more, as well as tune in like we've been on since we started so head over to those platforms to subscribe on the most convenient one for you and find all our back catalogue of episodes to listen to again as well